Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wegovy and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com/weightloss. That's plushcare.com/weightloss. plushcare.com/weightloss. Hi and welcome to another episode of Conversations with Annalisa. This episode is about the mechanics of birth. Basically what happens or should happen. It's not about what you should do or the sort of birth you should have. That's for you to decide. My guest today is Amy Sutton Cole, who was one of the midwives for my second pregnancy and birth. My other midwife was Siobhan Taylor. Siobhan wasn't there for the actual birth, but she was there throughout my anti and postnatal treatment and made me some amazing casseroles after my baby was born. Amy Sutton Cole is now the lead research midwife in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynaecology at the University of Cambridge. She's also study coordinator for the Pregnancy Outcome Prediction Study 2. Amy started work in the department in 2020, having previously worked as a senior research midwife in the NHS. She's received a Chief Midwifery Officer Silver Award for her work in reproductive health and childbirth research. Amy was an independent midwife for a time, which is when I met her. In this episode, we talk about what happens when you go into labour, optimum positions for birth, why it takes so damn long for a baby to move what seems just a couple of centimetres, and the wild movements babies get into as they make their way out. We also talk about how labour really isn't like how it's often represented on film and TV. Just to give you some context, my first child was born by emergency C-section. I was in labour for 36 hours. I was then given an epidural and induced. Then I had a full spinal and a try of forceps before being given a C-section. After this, and in order to help me understand what happened, I worked as a lay rep at the hospital my child was born at for the next four years, sitting on three committees. I read as much as I could about labour and read pretty much every nice guideline there was. When I got pregnant with my second child, I decided to try for an HBAC, a home birth after caesarean. My second child was born at home, in water, in front of the fire, while my elders slept upstairs. I'd taken two paracetamol. Both my births were amazing. I hope you enjoy this episode and find it empowering. If you'd like to listen to this podcast ad-free and before it goes on general release, please consider becoming a patron from just £3 a month or you can give a one-off donation via Acast Supporter. Both links will be in the episode description. 
Amy, hello and welcome. And who would have thought all those years ago when I dragged you away from your new husband on your first Valentine's night to deliver my baby that we would be doing a podcast together. But there you go, that's the way life goes. We're going to talk about the mechanics of birth. And I'd really like to start with a question that I've always wondered about, which is who or what decides that the baby's going to go into labour? Is it something with the mother or is it the baby that kind of presses an imaginary button? I think the most honest answer is that we don't fully understand it and it's likely to be several things that interact. We believe that it's something that the baby decides when they're ready to be born, but we know that we can help induce labour when we have a reason for a baby to be born earlier than it's perhaps ready to be born naturally and the body has decided. So we, we can do things to help artificially start labour. Starting off talking about labour happening naturally, mm-hmm. there are various ways that labour can happen. I mean, with my first child, I had spontaneous rupture of membranes, which is when your waters break. But with my second child, the one that you helped deliver, it was completely different. Labour can start with a couple of ways, can it? It can start many different ways. And I think your experience is definitely the way it often starts in the movies that waters often break first. And I think in reality, that's the least common way for labour to start. Most times people tend to, to start to feel some, some mild period type pains and be able to carry on with their day and not be quite sure. And as the day wears on, those period type pains become more regular and contractions are often the first sign or what we call a show where some mucus or some blood can be passed vaginally and that can sort of herald the the sign of that labour's happening. That's the mucus plug you're talking about? Yes, which just sits in the cervix and protects the pregnancy but does come away when labour's starting. So often contractions are the most common way for labour to start but water's breaking can be another way and I know you know most people expect that to happen first because we do see it a lot in the movies but generally that tends to not happen until contractions are regular and somebody is in in quite advanced established labour and sometimes the waters don't break at all babies can be born in the bag of waters and we need to break them once baby's born in, in a small number of cases. Yeah, they're born in the call, it's called, isn't it? The sort of the yes, sack. it is. Have you ever delivered a baby in the call? Only once in 20 years. Gosh. Do we have any idea why that happens sometimes? No, I think if labour's very natural and gentle, I guess some water's just, the bag of waters must be made tough and it, it doesn't break. It's interesting that it can happen so differently for so, so many different people. And the same woman in, in different labours, with different children, yeah. it can happen very differently. Well, mine were... were so different we'll sort of talk about that as we progress why do waters break do we know so the waters are there to to keep babies safe from infection ascending up up from the vagina but as babies are born you know they they have to be be out of the waters to take their first breath when they are born so at some point they they will have to break and the pressure of uterine contractions during labor often will will burst that bag of waters We hear a lot about contractions. Obviously, it's kind of the main thing in labour. Can you explain what they are? So contractions are the uterus, the the womb that the baby is growing in, is basically a a large muscle. And it will pulse and contract as muscles do when the body is labouring. It also happens during the later parts of pregnancy and is called a Braxton Hicks, a sort of practice contraction. And it's that helps the baby to to descend through the pelvis 
to be born. So the contractions are kind of pushing the baby out? Pushing the baby out. The uterus doesn't want to just contract and push the baby out in one go. The baby needs to get oxygen from the placenta. So they don't, they come and they go to keep giving the baby the oxygen and nutrients they need during labour. But each time just bringing the baby a little bit further down into the pelvis to be born. I didn't know that. So during the contractions, are they not getting stuff from the placenta? They will still be getting something, but it will be restricted. Right. I see. And is that one of the reasons if a labour goes on for too long that people start getting concerned? It can be. And it can be one of the reasons that we worry about if we're performing an induction or contractions naturally are just coming very, very close together. The baby's not getting a break and a rest and the, the placenta's not able to just reissue them a surge of oxygen. Yeah, never mind about poor mum not getting a break. So contractions are the ones we kind of know of. And I know that with my second child, which was the most sort of, I imagine, textbook labour, I mean, I couldn't even time them. I sort of, I remember earlier on in the afternoon, I was having a bath and my eldest was talking to me and I realised a couple of times I couldn't answer her. I couldn't talk. And then I just remember sort of they started and I remember calling you. But from then on, I think from the moment you came, I was just gone. I was away with the fairies. There was no hope of me, like, timing my contractions. There's phases of labour, aren't there, Amy? Can you explain what they are? So you'll often hear the terms latent phase of labour, first phase of labour, second stage and third stage. And the latent phase of labour is often only experienced with first pregnancies and it's Early contractions where it's getting baby into a good position for labour, the cervix is softening and ripening, and you would generally be able to carry on with your daily activities, but you might have to stop occasionally or you might be aware of some period type pain or some contractions. But contractions aren't regular and you can carry on with everyday life. Then we'd say the first stage of labour is when contractions are regular, around three to four in 10 minutes, and lasting for about 30 seconds each. And we wouldn't expect women necessarily to be be timing those themselves. Time does blur a little bit when you're in labour, but that's often the role of a, a birth partner to have a look at timing contractions. And also, particularly in first labours, Women tend to contact the maternity unit quite a few times to talk about the right time to come in or the right time to call a midwife to a home birth when they're working out whether they're in the first stage of labour or not. Is that the purpose of timing contractions? Yes. Yep. Just because you probably don't want somebody with you from the moment you start to contract in the way a watch pot never boils, you know, having someone in your house or going into hospital, you know, really early, it's not very conducive to to progressing in labour. So as a general rule, we'd say three to four contractions in 10 minutes, lasting about 30 seconds each. Okay. And then what's the next stage? The next stage would be the the second stage of labour, which is when your cervix is fully dilated, 10 centimetres, and you're ready to push, or you're having that strong urge to push if you haven't had a vaginal examination and we don't know what the cervix is doing. Um, We would say when you have that strong urge to push, that's the second stage of labour. And while baby is descending through the pelvis and, and you're pushing with contractions, that would be the second stage. Once baby's then born, the body will give you a little bit of a rest and then start to contract to deliver the placenta. And that we would call the third stage of labour when the placenta is being delivered. 
and the placenta so when the baby is implanted at the beginning of pregnancy the umbilical cord grows from the baby to the placenta or maybe the other way around <laughs> but basically the placenta is attached to the the uterine wall isn't it and yeah. that's where the baby breathes and gets all its nutrients from is that also what carries away the waste products it is and I find the placenta absolutely fascinating and I do enjoy where parents want to having a look at the placenta with the baby because it's the only time you'll get to see an organ that your your body's produced where something nice has happened and something horrible has not happened and a reason for it to be removed but it's a fascinating organ it's very very clever at transporting everything that baby needs to them and the waste away with these thick spiral arteries into the uterus and then a nice thick juicy cord that's got Wharton's jelly a sort of white jelly substance to really protect it going to baby. I do slightly regret not looking at mine but you know I've heard tales it looks like a kind of giant liver. Yeah one side looks like lots of little livers joined together in in the size of a sort of side plate to a dinner plate they can vary in size in the way that humans vary in size and newborn babies do yeah one side looks like lots of little pieces of liver and the other side is shiny because it's it's got the bag of waters on it and you can see quite clearly veins and arteries then going up into to the cord on the the shiny side the baby's side so there'll be two layers for the bag of water that, that goes around baby and that's attached to the placenta on one side with the cord coming out of it and then the other side is the side that looks like lobes of liver attached to mum's uterus yeah i imagine that side a bit like barnacles kind of attached yeah (laughs) back to the contractions so the contractions have obviously a role in that they do they turn the baby do they just squeeze it what do they because also what's the cervix doing when contractions are happening the baby is coming down through the pelvis and that's what contractions are designed to do and I think we often think of babies as being quite passive when they're being born but they do take quite an active role it's exhausting for them and and newborn babies sleep quite well in that first 24 hours because they've had a lot of work to do just like their mum so they're coming down through the pelvis with those contractions and as they meet the, the pelvic floor the muscle that sling of muscles within the bony pelvis the baby turns and navigates its way through the pelvis and through the vaginal canal to be born. So babies stimulated and, and various parts of its anatomy will be stimulated to adopt certain positions as it navigates its way through the pelvis. So babies are quite clever at turning and doing what they need to do to facilitate birth. And they just know this instinctively, obviously. So babies can be born either head first which we call cephalic or bottom first which we call breech never feet first so breech is not necessarily feet first it's bottom first bottom first so if, if babies were coming feet first we probably wouldn't then want to proceed with a, a vaginal delivery we'd probably more recommend a, a cesarean section because things are unlikely to be coming as smoothly if babies are feet first so breech is really bottom first yeah and it's incredible when you see a baby being born breech you can see the baby as it's coming out, going through these manoeuvres externally. We know from textbooks and what's happening internally, but when you see a baby being born that's breech, you can see it externally and it's just incredible. Describe what it's doing. So the baby has to turn to, to navigate through the pelvis because if you feel your own skull, if you tuck your chin to your chest, you can feel that just the top back of your head is quite small. But if you yeah. lift your head up, 
that the top of your head is quite wide. And so babies tuck and twist and turn as they navigate the pelvis. And if a baby is is breech, certainly once they're almost out and just the top of their head is is still inside mum, they will be stimulated by their feet touching the ground and they will nod their head to be born. So they just know they have to tuck their head for that last manoeuvre. My second child was born in the water Mm. and I remember her head was out and I remember I had this mad feeling of I've got to continue with this because I can't carry on for the rest of my life with the baby's head between my <laughs> legs, which I think must have been that transitional period where you do slightly think mad thoughts. But I remember her head turning and I said to you, one of the few things I said, I said, why are you turning her head? And you said, I'm not touching her. So her head was out, but why was she moving her head? The diameter of your pelvis is wide at the top, narrow in the middle, and then widens out again at the bottom. And as that happens, babies have to navigate by twisting their heads to get through. So when a baby is just born, the point we call crowning, we're able to be visualised externally, their head will have just passed looking at your back, so with the back of their head towards your front, and baby will have passed under that front hip bone that you can feel if you push just on your, your bony pelvis at the front. But then to navigate their shoulders coming out and being born, they'll then turn to look at one of your thighs. And that can be right or left that babies turn, but they need to twist their head and their shoulders inside just to be be born that, that final bit from the head being first visible at crowning to being born fully. Right. It's the bit I didn't know. And I remember it freaked me out because I was just like, what is happening? Given that, you know, we've evolved over so many millions of years why is it not in the right position straight away i've understood about the contractions to give the baby a break but why can't it just be in the right position it's a little bit of a compromise humans have grown to be rather brainy and our brain is in our head which needs to come out of the body in in human pregnancy but Equally, that that mum can't give birth to a baby when they're completely defenceless and and not fully ready for life externally. Now we walk upright and we have quite large heads. The compromise is that babies are born at nine months, but they are relatively helpless and need lots of care from the caregivers in those first months of life. But that they are small enough to come out, but they do need to navigate the pelvis with, with that sort of compromised time point, we believe. Yeah. And I guess also it's a case of being able to be carried comfortably, but then sort of coming out. I mean, it's really, really amazingly clever. And as I experienced birth naturally the second time around, and I could feel things going on. I remember my pelvis, it reminded me a bit of that sort of scene in Thunderbirds. I could feel my pelvis opening. Was that my imagination? No, your pelvis is, while it is bone and it is solid, it does have cartilage at the front and it is designed to be able to manoeuvre and be quite dynamic, particularly during birth. So you will feel your pelvis moving during labour. Not everybody will experience that to the the same level of intuitiveness that you have. You know, you were very relaxed and, and hypnobirthing and calm. And so I think you were very in tune with your body. So contractions are basically just, in heavy inverted commas, your muscle contracting. It is, like any other muscle in the body. And, you know, period type pains are that muscle contracting when you're you're shedding your endometrium for periods. But contractions in labour are a similar but slightly different function. I found between child number one and child number two, 
I worked for four years in a maternity hospital and I read practically everything there was and I was certainly much more informed and because I understood what was going on it really helped me do you find that's true of some women or some because people cope differently with labour pains and people have asked me what labour's like and it's really hard to explain because it's not a pain like going to the dentist and then you're kind of going ouch or at least it wasn't for me it was a sort of it was intense mm. but once I found out that my uterus was a muscle and once I understood what was going on and that it was actually like a helpful thing it did help me do you think women in your experience if they know what's going on it helps them or is it better to kind of just switch off I think knowledge is power and I think it's it's always good to learn a lot about a topic and I think women going into labour where they're informed feel much more empowered they know to a certain extent what to expect and they've had to think about meeting different stages of labour and what they would like to do and discuss that with their birth partner often so their birth partner is able to support them. I have looked after some women who haven't researched it very much and particularly a lot of the the farming community out in the fens they'll often know a lot about animal labours but aren't so bothered about coming to antenatal classes and learning everything and they tend to cope wonderfully because they see how well normal labor works for their animals and they expect and have a a, you know a lot of faith in their body because why would it not work for one species when it works so well for others but a lot of the the people I look after do attend antenatal classes and I think find a lot of benefit in that contractions again I can only talk about my experience they kind of definitely got into a rhythm and then as well as sort of maneuvering the baby what's happening with the cervix during labor So the baby's head will be putting pressure onto the cervix with those contractions. And the cervix is actually part of of the uterus, the womb. It's the bottom part. And if you think about a a balloon before it's been blown up and it has that little tail part at the bottom. Mm -hmm. But when you blow the balloon up, that bottom part becomes part of the balloon. And that's a little bit like pregnancy. The top part of the vagina, the cervix, is part of the, the uterus and will be drawn up. To, to form the bottom part of the uterus during pregnancy. And then in, in labour, the baby will push their head against the cervix. And in, in a first pregnancy, the cervix sits quite long and it feels sort of a little bit like the tip of your nose, quite solid. And it has to soften first. So it feels sort of more like your lips and is, is soft before it then starts to dilate. And everybody thinks of that dilation to 10 centimetres from the movies, 10 centimetres being fully dilated and when the baby can pass through the cervix. And of course, we don't get a ruler out measure. It's always an approximation when we're assessing how many centimetres somebody is dilated in labour. When you've had a baby before, that softening of the, the cervix before it starts to dilate can all happen in one go. It's like your body thinks, I've done this before, I, I, I can multitask it this time. But with your first labour, there tends to be a sort of set pattern of things where the cervix will start to soften and ripen before it starts to dilate and it thins and it naturally sits sort of tucked more towards your bottom and it starts to come a little bit more forwards to your front during early labour. It does, so your womb, the door does open. I know one of the things that really threw me with my first, and obviously you weren't there, but 
I saw so many midwives, I was in the hospital, and every one of them had a different interpretation of how dilated I was. I mean, you mm. know, you sort of said we don't get a ruler out, but I sort of thought there would be a standard, and everyone told me something different. And then fast forward to when I had my second child with you, I only had one vaginal examination, VE, and that was the very end, because I'd never actually birthed vaginally we had discussed that you would need to check that my cervix was fully dilated generally speaking why is there such a difference in interpretation of how dilated you are I think because it isn't an exact science and the cervix obviously can open and close it has to close again after labour but can it open and close during labour I there is not lots of documented evidence, but I am sure where I have had continuity of care with some women, that where something that's caused a lot of anxiety for them has happened, when I have re-examined, I am sure that their cervix has started to close in labour. Interesting, because of course, if the baby's not presenting correctly, mm. you won't dilate. And that's what happened with child number one. Yeah. She was presenting with her forehead, so the largest part of her head. She was taller than 99.9% of babies born in this country and I don't think my interpretation after having read the notes many times and gone Mm. through them with many midwives I don't think she could turn her head but that is correct isn't it that if the baby's not presenting the cervix will protect you yeah so if the baby's not applying an even pressure with their head onto the cervix the cervix won't dilate as we would expect and certainly you say your waters went early you know first and that was your first sign of labor yeah it's more likely for that to happen if baby is in what we call an op an occiput posterior which is where the baby's back is against your back position it isn't always the case that that your waters will break first if baby's in that position but we tend to see it more commonly in that position do we know why I think it's often to do with the pressure being unevenly distributed onto the cervix, but causing a lot of pressure that will rupture the membranes. But babies don't tend to fit as easily into the pelvis. They have to turn and it can can be a sort of long labour where baby's doing a lot of work trying to turn from that position rather than focusing on dilation of the cervix because babies aren't particularly well applied to the cervix. You mentioned OP position. What's the other one? So we would want babies to be in either a left or right. So we call them LOA or ROA, right or left occiput anterior. So with babies sort of looking sideways into the pelvis, that is the way they they tend to fit into the pelvic brim most easily. And with OP, how are they orientated? So with OP, babies would be looking the same direction that you are. So their back would be against your back. Right. Okay. Yeah. Because there's lots of sort of old wives' tales about things like if you're pregnant, wash floors on your hands and knees because that helps the baby sling over. I'm sure that was just a way to get women to do more housework. (laughs) I remember through all the pregnancy forums, it was like nobody wanted to have an OP baby because labour was meant to be more difficult. I think that as women, we particularly have a tendency to beat ourselves up and blame ourselves for things. And, Mm. And I know that, you know, there is a lot of worry about having an OP baby and thinking it's because I sat down at my desk and I had to work until I went on maternity leave. There are things that we can do to help encourage babies, but babies will adopt the position they're comfortable in. You know, when we go for a scan, we get people doing star jumps and all sorts and babies will persistently stay where they want to be. You know, we can do things to encourage, but we also can't beat ourselves up for something that's beyond our control. No, absolutely. I wish I could speak to my grandmother who had 10 children and I'm sure she would tell me that she did 
similar things and every baby's birth was slightly different. Unfortunately, I never got to speak to my great-grandmother who had 18 children. Wow. And I have to say that that gave me great confidence because with my second child, I wore my grandmother's necklace. Mm -hmm. I put it on at 37 weeks and I remember thinking, I've researched this and I need to just detach my brain from my body. Mm -hmm. Obviously, not literally. And just, I put on her chain and I thought, she's birthed 10 children at home, all survived and I thought my body knows what to do I mean a little bit what you're saying about farming women that you know who just they've seen it it's natural and they trust their bodies I think we've become very afraid of birth there's a lot of misinformation out there absolutely and I I loved your owner's necklace I thought it was such a lovely connection to our ancestors and I don't know about you but certainly when I had my own baby I felt very connected during pregnancy labour and breastfeeding to my ancestors and women throughout the ages. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. So. We're in labour, we've contracted, we are contracting, and our cervix is dilated. What happens next? So sometimes once you are fully dilated, you can have a phase that's called rest and be thankful, where (laughs) contractions can go off a little bit, almost as though, you know, you just need to have a little breather before the contractions change and you you start to really feel that urge to push it doesn't happen for everybody but it is something that that can happen equally you mentioned during transition which is a strange phase and often women who are in hospital say they want to go home and they can't do this anymore Mm. or women who are at home will say they want to go to the hospital and there is a big 
phase of just thinking, no, not doing this anymore. I give up. Don't want to do this. And and almost irrational thoughts. But it does pass. And it, it often is a sign that midwives are looking for to think, OK, we're, we're approaching time for birth now and pushing will start soon. And your body takes over, you know, in the way that a lot of women worry about how will I know to push but it's very very similar to needing the toilet and having to open your bowels you know you know when you need to poo and your body sort of tells you how to do it and pushing a baby out is very very similar and it literally can feel as though you need to open your bowels it's the same part of the anatomy that the head is pushing on yes because some women can poo themselves during labor and they get sort of terribly sort of worried about that but it's completely natural isn't it absolutely and we've seen it all before and midwives are very very good at being very discreet about it you know birth partners often don't realize that's happened and I've had many women who have had a bowel movement during labor say oh and I didn't didn't poo myself but also we're now finding out I mean slightly you know onto a different topic but that first meal of poo and blood is actually very important to colonise the baby's gut, isn't it? Absolutely. Baby's first vaccine, essentially. It's, you know, really important for microbiome. So interesting you mentioned about pushing because that's something, again, which we see a lot on the telly about push, push, push. And I remember when I was pregnant with child number two and I told a couple of people I was trying for um, H-back home birth after cesarean, which obviously was quite a contentious subject with some people. But I met one woman who'd done it and she really crystallised something for me. And she said, you know when you've got to push. She said, it's exactly when you're sick, but the other end. And when you're sick, when you vomit, no one has to say to you, and now puke, and now puke. And it really, really made sense to me. I knew what I had to do. So why do we sometimes see that thing of push and women being told to push? I think a lot of it is timescales in hospitals where we have um, augmented labour. So we've potentially given a hormone drip to speed up labour or somebody's been induced. and, And as part of the steps of that, we've softened and ripened the cervix, broken the waters and then started a hormone drip to start contractions. We do allow an hour after we have done a vaginal examination and found the cervix to be fully dilated before we start pushing. But often, because of all those drugs and people being very tired, sometimes an epidural or or other drugs, that sort of being in tune with your body is disrupted. Yeah, well, if you've had an epidural, you can't actually... You can't actually feel anything often. Depends how dense the blocks are. So an epidural is a form of pain relief that completely blocks any pain or sharp sensations, but where you are still able to feel pressure. So an epidural is inserted into the epidural space in the spine by an anaesthetist, a very well-trained doctor. And epidurals are improving significantly compared to when I first started training and we had to lift people's legs because they were so heavy and the block was so dense that women couldn't move around the bed themselves. Now women, they couldn't stand self-supported, but they've got a lot of mobility in bed and can often feel contractions, not the pain of contractions, but the pressure of contractions. So so some women with epidurals still can feel a lot more than they used to, but they wouldn't tend to get that overwhelming desire to push. I think that's a perfect analogy that being sick. I think that's that's much better than, than needing the toilet, actually, because it very much is that involuntary. Mm. Well, it's phasal, it. isn't it? Like when you yeah. vomit, it's it's really phasal. And that really made sense to me. And I, in fact, it was like, in fact, 
the pushing bit was was great it felt very uh, productive and satisfactory Amy you mentioned a hormonal drip what's involved in that what is it so the hormonal drip is something called syntocinon and it's an artificial version of what the body would naturally produce in labor and would cause contractions and we use it in an induction of labor but as one of the last steps of an induction we wouldn't want to start contractions before the waters had broken and before the head was well applied to the cervix. So first of all, we would have to insert something called prostaglandins into the vagina, which soften and ripen the cervix. Then we hopefully would soften and ripen the cervix enough to dilate it just a little bit so that we could break the waters with something called an amni hook, which is a little bit like a crochet hook. Oh, that sounds horrible. It does sound awful, but... It's actually very gentle and it's very tiny and just sits alongside the midwife's finger. But it has to be quite long like a crochet hook because we have to Mm. be able to hold it against our hand in order to use it. But generally, women wouldn't feel anything different to a vaginal examination. So we are pushing. In your experience, does it vary? I mean, I think I was pushing for about 45 minutes from Mm. memory and... But does it vary enormously or is there is there pretty standard? It does. Most women who are listening to their body and pushing when they are ready, a baby would appear within an hour to two hours. And I know that feels like an awful long time to be pushing. But as you've mentioned earlier, time you know gets a little bit fuzzy when you're in labour. And it doesn't feel that long when you are, are labouring and pushing. Generally, in hospitals, we, we would want to see progress within an hour. And we'd be looking for reasons why maybe we're not having a baby that's born within an hour of starting pushing. But sometimes with a first baby, it can take a little bit longer. Why might a baby just not be born in an hour? So if the contractions are not being particularly effective, so sometimes you can contract quite a lot, but they're very short and it's just not long enough for baby to to sort of have those reflexes stimulated and, and navigate the pelvis well. Sometimes it can be that the contractions are not frequent enough or if somebody's got an epidural, sometimes if the block is a little bit denser than we'd hoped that mum isn't feeling where to push particularly well and isn't able to push effectively. I just want to come back to something. I mean, it's not a lot of space for the baby to come down. So what's taking so long? Is it that it moves at like millimetre pace? It is. And you know, we've got, mum's got to live with her pelvic floor health the rest of her life. Right. So you want that to stretch up slowly. Right. And, you know, it will all go back as it was. And some people do have very, very rapid births with no ill effects. But that doesn't tend to be with your first baby. Generally, that navigation through the pelvis happens quite slowly the first time just to to protect mum and baby. Now, in terms of positions, I remember with child number two, she wouldn't let me sit down. What I wanted was a rope from the ceiling to hang from. I didn't have one. Mm -hmm. But that sort of feeling of hanging, because I remember I couldn't sit down the whole labour. Whereas with child number one, when I was in labour, I was walking around and bouncing on a ball. And it was really different. So obviously, women have to find positions that are comfortable for them. But there are some positions that are more conducive to birth, aren't there? Mm. The more upright you can be, the better generally and that can be 
bouncing up and down on a ball, as you've mentioned, or wandering around. And that wanting to pull down from something on the roof is, is quite common. I know in, in my local birth centre, we have hooks on the ceiling, which we can wrap cloth wraps that are, are very strong and people can wrap them around their arms and, and really pull on those down from the ceiling, which can be very beneficial. Generally, all fours, upright positions, if you do need to rest during labour, which some people do, lying on your left hand side is often quite comfortable. Or the use of water and you know can be really supportive in, in helping you adapt to different positions. But I think listening to your body is very important. I find it very interesting that women tend to adopt the same all fours position when they're having a breech vaginal birth and there's something that helps the physiology and so I think when somebody really feels that a position is comfortable in labour where the baby's head down I think listening to your body is very important because it's often helping and very intuitive be knowing what the right position to adopt is for your baby navigating that part of the pelvis. You mentioned if you want to rest, some people find it beneficial to rest on the left-hand side. Why the left? We tend to say the left because most babies tend to have their back on the left-hand side of mum. But yeah. left or right is is fine. We, we just tend to say the left because of the, the, the major blood vessels are, are on the right-hand side. And so we don't want you to be flat on your back when you've got a large bump. And the left-hand side tends to be the most comfortable. Yeah, talking flat on your back, of course, that is how it's often depicted. In fact, nearly always on the television. And mm. I can understand why, because you want to see the, the actress's face that they've paid so much <laughs> money for. I don't know any women who naturally go into that position giving birth because your pelvis closes slightly, doesn't it? It does. We all have that the coccyx, the tailbone at the base of our spine, and that does move backwards and forwards and, and can be pushed out of the way when a baby's coming through. But if you're lying flat on a hard bed, it can't flex backwards. And so you're having to, to push a baby uphill around that curve of the tailbone and it isn't able to move out of the way nice and freely. But it is the position that most people adopt on television and people do tend to go into a room, see a bed and lie down when they're in labour. A lot of, of midwives will push the bed to the side of the room and try and not make it the focus and only use it if, if it's necessary and, and try and encourage people to, to walk around if they feel able to. So crowning, what is crowning? So crowning is the part where the, the vaginal opening is starting to part and the baby is... is visible externally and the, the the widest part of the baby's head is is just coming out of, of the vagina and then once that comes out that because that bit tends to happen fairly or relatively quickly doesn't it it's relatively quickly it might be the part where if, if it's not your first baby if, if it's happening very quickly the midwife might try and advise you to, to breathe rather than actively push just to prevent tears that it can happen slowly and sometimes we do use hot compresses. If somebody's not in a birth pool, hot compresses can feel very nice and just prevent stinging and, and prevent tearing as well at that point. Because, yes, quite often you see on the telly as well, they're getting women to breathe and pant. Mm. I, I never felt the need to do that. What is that about? It's if somebody's having directed pushing, for example, if they've got an epidural as pain relief and, and aren't feeling the urge to push in, in, in a natural way, the midwives might be directing pushing. And so we don't want somebody to push really with all their might at the point of crowning because it would increase the chances of a tear. And so at that point, we try and say, stop pushing and, and 
they don't necessarily need to pant, but we're just trying to think of a quick thing that people would be familiar with to, to not push. To sort of distract them. Yeah. Okay, so baby's head has come out and then it turns, as I described, and then everything sort of is on fast forward, isn't it? Yeah. So then you hope in a natural, normal birth that baby's shoulder would then be delivered under that, that bony prominence at the front of the pelvis and then the rest of the body would follow pretty quickly. What starts the breathing? As you remember, my second child was born in the water mm. and I remember the fact that she was underwater, but of yeah. course not breathing yet, still breathing through the umbilical cord. We know that obviously a baby can breathe through the umbilical cord because mm. otherwise how would they breathe in your uterus? But there was just something so graphic about her being in the water and yet not still breathing. Mm. And I know a question my children have asked, which is how long can a baby do that for? Because obviously they're born and you pull them out, but She's still attached to my umbilical cord. So babies, when they're born, will have some kind of stimulation. And often it's that the, the room they're in, we want to make it cosy for babies, but it'll often be a little bit cooler than inside body temperature. And that will stimulate them to draw their first breath. And we've now got a lot of evidence. We used to cut and clamp the, the umbilical cord quite quickly and get babies and stimulate them. You know, we, we see in very old films, people slapping babies to try and, and get them to, to breathe and holding them upside down by the ankles. But now we know we do want to stimulate them if they're a little bit slow to take those first breaths and we can give them a vigorous rub with a towel, but something a lot more gentler than, than we see in the old movies. But we tend to now leave the umbilical cord attached so that baby can have quite a gentle transition to breathe and we can still rely on them getting oxygenated blood from the placenta while they adapt to, to life outside. Yeah, I've always thought it's slightly mad that they have an oxygen supply and that that's cut. But it's about placental transfusion, isn't it? It is. And the placenta, if, if we cut and clamp very early, we'll still have a lot of oxygen-rich blood inside it. And so leaving it intact with baby and not cutting and clamping until a certain amount of time has passed or until it's completely stopped pulsating just ensures baby's not depleted of that oxygen-rich blood in, in the first days of life. The placenta, you know, it is the baby's lifeline and all the nutrients it needs to grow and develop while it's in utero, and certainly for that transition to new life. My placenta did come out naturally. A hello world for that information. <laughs> but why might it not come out? Because you can pass it naturally or you can have a, is it a managed... What's yeah, it called? Um, a managed third stage where you would have a, an injection of syntocinon or syntometrin to help the placenta detach. So it might not come out, particularly if, if somebody gets cold and the, the body sort of vasoconstricts, sometimes that can affect the placenta coming out. Sometimes just in the way that we're all slightly different, you can have a placenta that's just particularly adherent and it, it doesn't come out cleanly. But nature's pretty clever. For the majority of women, it will come out within an hour naturally with no complications at all. Putting baby to the breast if you, you want to breastfeed will stimulate the hormones to release the placenta but some people have a higher risk of, of bleeding or from the blood work that we've done in pregnancy we're concerned about if they bled their iron levels particularly low or their, their clotting factors are low and then we might recommend that they have an injection for a managed third stage sort of preempt and, and reduce the chances of that that high level of bleeding. The uterus contracts down and as the, the uterus shrinks, the placenta detaches from the uterine wall and is ready for delivery. And where we've given syntocinone or syntometrin, the midwife would then gently 
pull on the, the cord to pull the placenta out. Whereas if we haven't given that injection and somebody's waiting to deliver the placenta naturally, we would wait for signs of lengthening and the feeling of contractions and, and ask mum to, to push the placenta out. Yeah, I remember I didn't really want to let go of mine. I remember you saying if it doesn't come soon, we might have to think about giving an injection and and, and in the end you, you put me on the toilet and it came <laughs> out. Because I think I'd done so much work by that stage. I was like, oh my God. Yeah, because I also wanted to try, um, what was it called? Lotus um, a lotus birth. Where you carry around the placenta. And I remember you said to me, do you want to do that? And I was so tired that I was just like... <gasps> swear word I was like "Mm, that because I was just like no I just I didn't want to do that but lotus birthing is when you carry the placenta around until such time as it naturally detaches isn't it it is and often people pack the placenta with salt or herbs and have to to wrap it in a little bag just to stop it smelling and, and becoming disgusting because the placenta and cord do drop off by a process of gangrene so it can often be a little bit smelly and gunky yeah. around a cord whether it's left intact at a lotus birth or just left as a little stump to drop off in that first week or so of life one often hears sort of stories about oh the baby was born with a cord wrapped around its neck mm-hmm. but is that as dangerous as it sounds given that the baby isn't breathing through its mouth Not necessarily. Lots of babies will be born with the cord around their neck. It's only an issue if the cord has wrapped around many, many times and is pulled, or or even once, but where it's pulled particularly tight. So it can be quite normal for the baby's cord to be wrapped around its body or its neck. But if it doesn't pull tight, then the nutrients and the oxygenated blood will continue to flow to baby as it, it has been. So I think it's something that can be used to add a little bit of drama to television programmes when someone's birthing, but it rarely is an emergency. What is meconium? So meconium is the baby's first bowel movement, and that naturally would sit in the bowel in the later stages of pregnancy. And most babies would not pass that bowel movement until they've been born. But sometimes if a baby is stressed by an event in labour or late pregnancy, they might pass that bowel movement. You know, mm-hmm. as we would when we're scared, you feel like you need to go to the toilet and babies are, are no different from adults in that respect. So sometimes they might pass that bowel movement inside and we would have what we call light meconium stained water. So sometimes when, when the waters are broken, we can see that there's small pieces of meconium floating or if babies had a large bowel movement, thick meconium stained waters. And that's something we'd be a little bit more concerned about because if, if babies hasn't been born and we're seeing that, it can be that as baby takes their first breath and gasps that they can ingest some of that meconium, which can be dangerous if it's in baby's lungs. Because like a sort of semi-solid thing that they've inhaled. Yeah, certainly Meconium can be a very natural thing to see in labour at a breech vaginal birth as babies are squeezed and the forces on their abdomen and the pressures during labour. We often say meconium looks like it's coming out of mum like toothpaste because the baby's Mm. bowel will be be squeezed and Mm. it will will come out in quite a constant stream. And that's quite a normal stage for breech birth. It doesn't necessarily mean that baby's distressed. Also, the baby can come out covered in this waxy thing. What's that? So that's called vernix and that would naturally be on babies to protect their skin because they're in a bag of waters. It's just a sort of waxy substance that covers the baby entirely. And babies that are born prematurely tend to have quite a lot of vernix. 
babies that are born at term tend to have nothing or, or very little. Sometimes you just see remnants of it in sort of eyebrows or hair or armpits and groin and it, it remains and it will just rub into the skin or you can wipe it off and it doesn't cause any ill effects. It's just a nature's moisturiser essentially. A bit a bit like those people who used to cover themselves in goose fat to swim the channel. It does look exactly like that. <laughs> yeah, and I guess it's the same, similar purpose. It sort of protects you against the waters. Now, Amy, sometimes women need a bit of help in giving birth. And that's when, if you're in a hospital, because I don't think you can have this at home, you might need something called a avantus or forceps, mm-hmm. slightly crossing my legs at this stage of the conversation. Could you explain to our listeners what they are and why they might be implemented? Yes. So if the baby isn't coming out, as we'd expect, just from mum pushing in the second stage of labour, sometimes it might be indicated that rather than do a caesarean section, because the cervix is fully dilated and baby is able to be born vaginally, but would need a little bit of help, we have options of, of forceps or vontus. And it would be after a vaginal examination and a, an assessment of that specific situation, which would be the best one to use. So forceps are metal. They're a little bit like salad servers or tongs. They look a lot scarier than they are because they need to be long to be able to reach the baby's head. And they're designed to be slightly curved and wrapped round baby's head to protect the skull. It gives the the doctor the opportunity to to manoeuvre baby into positions to navigate the the bony part of the pelvis to facilitate birth. Whereas a vontus might be used if baby has navigated the majority of the pelvis and just needs help with that last part, the crowning part. And it's essentially like a little suction cup that would be placed on top of baby's head. Like a plunger. A little bit like a plunger, yes. And it just isn't, we don't, suction baby out as such mum still pushes but while mum's pushing the doctor applies a little bit of gentle traction with that plunger to help guide baby out and that's when sometimes babies that have been born with avontus can have a slightly kind of sort of peaky head can't they obviously it goes back it heals very very quickly and babies are designed to to navigate the pelvis and have quite a little bit of swelling on their heads they're tough they expect quite a bit of force on them during labor so they heal very quickly from avontus you were midwife before you became a mother, so that must have been super interesting, I'm imagining, for you. Was there anything, once you had yourself laboured, that either surprised you or that you're glad you knew? Sort of any kind of general tips, if you like, for people? I was quite surprised when I laboured that it was very much as I expected in many ways. And I'd had mm-hmm. lots of labour dreams. And I remember thinking, is this really it? Because it feels very much like the dreams I've had. But I think the thing that helped me most was hypnobirthing. I attended so many labours where women had been incredibly calm and had an enjoyable, positive experience of labour because they had hypnobirth. I knew that was something I wanted to do. And what is hypnobirthing? It's practicing relaxation techniques and taking time in later pregnancy to do some guided visualizations so playing recordings and pieces of music while you relax and and think positive thoughts and visualize labor you practice these techniques over and over in the latter parts of pregnancy which is enjoyable in itself because it's taking some time for you and bonding with your baby and then when you're in labor you play those visualizations or those pieces of music you can play them continuously or you can play them 
just if you are, are getting more anxious or things change to help bring you back to a state of deep relaxation. And I myself didn't have the most straightforward birth. I had preeclampsia and I had an induction of labour because of that. And it wasn't the home birth that I planned. But using techniques that hypnobirthing gave me in the visualisations, I had a very positive experience and remained very calm and relaxed. And I think they can be very useful techniques whether you're at home, hospital, or preparing for a caesarean section, I think hypnobirthing's helped me postnatally and in, in life beyond pregnancy enormously. Yeah, so. well, you encouraged me to do hypnobirthing, and I did do it, and it was amazing. One of the visualisations I had, which I remember so vividly, was when the contractions came, I remember putting them in a little hot air balloon and mm-hmm. then going away, And it sounds really simple, but it really, really worked. And like you, I sort of also sometimes use it in an appropriate time and space to Mm -hmm. relax myself. Because obviously our brains can really interfere with labour. And the more relaxed you are, the more you're letting your body deal with it. Because, you know, you're helping with everything like blood flow, Mm -hmm. efficient hormones going around your body. So the more relaxed you can be, the better Amy, thank you so much. Thank you so much for delivering my baby and my wonderful home birth after cesarean. And it's been great to talk to you. And thank you so much for being part of this. Oh, thank you for inviting me. It's been lovely catching up. Thank you so much to Amy, not only for delivering my baby, but for such a clear and calm explanation of what happens. Something I want to pass on that I learned after researching labour is a useful tip. It's not about babies, but about jumpers. If you ever can't get a jumper over your head, the temptation is to try to force the jumper with the opening near your forehead. This is where your head is largest, so don't do this. If instead you move the jumper to the top back of your head, the crown or vertex, this is where your head is at its smallest circumference. If the jumper is ever going to go on, it will if pulled on here. This also neatly tells you where the baby's head will present to the cervix, which is what we talked about in the podcast. If you're planning a birth, Birthrights is a really good organisation with lots of factual info, largely based, as the name suggests, around your rights and the law. The producer is Hester Kant, the music is by Toby Dunham and our artwork is by Lo Cole. If you'd like to read my column, it appears every Saturday in The Guardian Saturday magazine. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello, this is Annalisa. I started doing this podcast because it's an idea I really believe in. So much so that I decided to put my money where my mouth is and self-fund the project. I really want to keep releasing this podcast for free. So if you enjoy this episode, a way you can help is to visit our ACAST supporter page and give what you can. You'll find the link in the episode description. Thank you.